video for our men's e-group that will start in however many weeks we said, three weeks, uh, being led by, that's what I thought, Lee Bird. I didn't want to say it before I, was, I knew I was right. Um, we'll have a promo video, I believe, for our ladies' uh, Bible study, which will be uh, a kingdom woman, becoming a kingdom woman, uh, also by Tony Evans, but for ladies. So we certainly want to uh, encourage you strongly to be a part of the e-groups. We'll, we'll also have, we'll continue Jonah in here on Sunday nights. Uh, there will be something for youth, uh, Tim Tebow's uh, study called Shaken. Uh, that will be what the youth will be going over. Uh, we'll have stuff for kids. It's going to be, a, again, for the whole family. That's, that's our focus now is to make sure that everything we do connects the entire family. So we want to uh, encourage you to be a part of that. Thank you, by the way, for uh, allowing my family to, to go on vacation for a few days. We uh, enjoyed the time off, but I'm certainly happy to be back and uh, back up here. You might not have known, I've got a few announcements I want to go through. You might not have known today is Sanctity of Life Sunday uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention. I believe if I'm reading my information correctly, today is actually the 43rd, 4th, thank you, 44th, anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision that uh, legalized abortion for pretty much any reason at any point in your pregnancy. And uh, while we certainly stand against abortion, we uh, also want to stand for doing everything we can to help unexpected pregnancies. We know what causes it, so it can't be too unexpected, but they can be a surprise sometimes. Uh, helping the parents, the mother, if there's just, just the one parent, fostering, adopting, kind of close to my heart, as you can imagine, uh, being there for those who find themselves in that situation. We don't want abortion, but we want to do everything we can to, to provide for parents, mothers, the children in those situations. So crisis pregnancy centers are something we as a church should be supporting. Uh, we as a church, the, the statistic is if, if one family from every church in the country uh, would adopt or foster or adopt a child, there would be no more children in foster care. Let that sink in. If just one family in here fostered a child and one family from every other church in Sulphur and Louisiana and Texas, et cetera, et cetera, there would be no more children in foster care. Good work, church. Sanctity of life from pre-birth to natural death all the way through is what we, we stand for. So that's today. Uh, my message is not about that, uh, but I, just did wanna, I did just want to remind you of that. Um, Tom also talked about uh, winter Bible study. Actually, Amy talked about winter Bible study. Let me strongly encourage you to be a part of that. And, and let me tell you how wonderful Amy is. I went to Amy October and said, hey, I want to do the winter Bible study. And she said, okay, how do you want to do it? And I don't know. Uh, you know, growing up, it was five nights during the week. We had sandwiches, and, and it was just come, and it, it was, that's all it was. And I said, we could do that, but, you know, we don't have to. Let's, you know, think about it. Find something else to do. Well, she went all super creative, and it is wonderful what she has planned for our uh, winter Bible study. I never thought about the kids. I was like, well, we'll do the adults, and we'll, you know, we'll let the kids play. No, that's not the way she works. So she has planned all of this. This is all from her hand. 
and uh, I'm incredibly impressed, excited about what that weekend is going to be, uh, how, uh, what it's going to be for us. So I encourage you strongly to come and be a part. And then my final thing to push is the Sunday School Fellowship, February 5th. Some of you could not give a rat's whisker about football, and that is perfectly fine. I personally don't understand it. Talk to me because we need to convert you. But if you don't, this is not a football fellowship. This is a Sunday school fellowship. Should your Sunday school decide to make it a football fellowship, go for it. But if not, don't. But do make it a Sunday school fellowship. Those of you this morning, and based on our numbers in Sunday school versus our numbers in worship, some of you here in this room this morning don't come to Sunday school. Maybe you haven't found one that you're comfortable with. Maybe you don't know the people well enough to get involved in a Sunday school. This is your opportunity to get to know the people outside of the classroom, outside of the, maybe the rigidness of a classroom if you have a particularly rigid Sunday school class. I don't know of any of those in here, but maybe, maybe you just kind of feel that way. This is your opportunity to get to know some people. Uh, maybe this is your opportunity, you're a Sunday school teacher, and your class isn't doing something, or uh, you want to take this opportunity, you put somebody else in charge, you want to take this opportunity to go, I'm particularly thinking about children's Sunday school teachers, maybe this is your opportunity to go and spend some adult time uh, with some folks. Whatever it may be, use this opportunity to fellowship. Use this opportunity to bring in people who aren't in your Sunday school class. Maybe that includes neighbors that you want to invite to uh, your, your Sunday school fellowship particularly if it does center around a particular uh, football game that just happens to be occurring the same night that we're planning this. So I, I, I'm, we've got some great things happening, some great things coming up. We, we are going to be doing more, but every opportunity, as I said, is to connect our families and to connect to our, uh, our neighborhoods. We want to make sure we're doing that in each of these situations. The Winter Bible Study will be an opportunity for, for you to invite folks as well. Uh, uh, a less formal event, lots of fellowship, lots of activity. So I encourage you to be involved with all of that. Okay, end of those commercials. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. We're continuing our study of the flock. Jesus' church, the flock. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 10 this morning. That's our focus. And we're going to see what Jesus continues to say about uh, about the flock, and particularly in this passage, much more about himself. Divyakshi Gupta, that's a person, is a, a photographer in Mumbai, India. We have an example of her photography. She takes pictures of doors. That's kind of her thing. Um, I'm glad to know other people do that, too. I've personally... I've just loved the paintings of doors, photos of doors. Uh, this is one of hers. She said of doors, I often think doors are veils to home. Each has a distinct character, speaking volumes of the people living behind the door. It's fun to guess what could possibly be behind a door, an array of secrets, emotions, and mysteries, a home with laughter, heartaches, hopes, banter, and more. And I think maybe that's, if you are at all you know, lean that direction, like, like you like the photos, the paintings of doors, maybe those are some of the things you've thought of. I, I don't know that I've ever put it into words like that, but that is, 
some of what kind of passes, crosses my mind. Uh, doors are often, in, often intriguing and hold wonder. Uh, some doors can. Some, you're like, well, there ain't nothing special about that. As a matter of fact, the, the next picture uh, is uh, from a few years back of, of me and Etta in uh, Cáceres, Spain. Uh, this particular door, if I remember correctly, is a door to a church that's about, what, 600 years old in this town of Cáceres. Cáceres is one of the uh, few remaining completely walled cities uh, in Spain. The, the walls are hugely thick, and it, they date from like the 1200s or something like that, and it's one of the few where the, 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 the wall is complete. We got to go down in this church, and there was some incredible, incredible stuff in this, in this really old church. Uh, but this was just one of the doors, and, and I wondered, and you can't get in them. You know, you can get in like one or two of the doors. Uh, heck, walk around this church and look at all the doors. I found out there's a stairwell a couple of weeks ago like that comes outside, a door. I, I didn't even know the door was there. I certainly didn't know that the stairwell was there. It holds mystery, right? These doors sometimes do. C.S. Lewis, author of Lion, a Witch, and a Wardrobe, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and numerous other books, he knew the power and the mystery of a door. And he centered an entire children's series, six or seven books, around the doors of a wardrobe. Uh, and, and as much as I've read about him, I can't recall anything in particular that led him to that, but I can imagine him sitting in his home in the kilns, looking at a wardrobe and probably a very ornate one, and thinking, those doors, there's a story there. Well, Jesus tells us about a door. He actually says he is the door. He's the door of the flock. The beautiful thing about Jesus is there's no mystery to what's behind the door. Oh, certainly there is great mystery. We don't understand Jesus, and we never will completely, but there is no mystery to what is behind that door, but that there is certainly wonder and power behind that door, behind that gate that Jesus says he is. John 10, 7 through 10 tells us about that door. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Last week, we saw the relationship of the shepherd to the sheep. That's what we looked at in verses 1 through 6. This week, in this passage, we are going to see that the shepherd provides. That's what we're looking at this week. The shepherd provides. How does he do that? Well, let's work through this passage and see how he does it. First of all, Jesus says he is the gate or he is the door. Some of your versions may have different translations. Some may say gate, some may say door. It's interchangeable here. This, this image in verse 7 takes us back to the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. That, that would have been one of the things that the original hearers would have immediately thought of was, wait a minute, he's talking about uh, Messiah stuff here. We recognize what he's doing. Uh, as an example, Psalm 118.20 says, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. 
So when Jesus says, hey, y'all, I'm the gate, I'm the door, immediately they're going to think, wait a minute, he is, he is he's making himself God. He's making himself the Messiah. And they, they would be exactly right. This is, a, this is a very common motif in the Old Testament, and not just in the Old Testament, but in, in ancient uh, religions that, that there was a gate or a door to heaven. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. I am the door. I assure you, I am the door. I promise you, I am the door. I guarantee you, I am the door. Later on, he's going to tell them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not going to be equivocal about this. It's not, I'm one of them. I'm a door of many doors. I'm the way of many ways. No, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way. And then he tells them why he is the only door gate, why he is the only door. He talks about the fact that others have come before me. In verse 8, he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. There were plenty that came before Jesus that tried to get people to follow him, to say, I'm the Messiah you're looking for. I am your rescuer. Many came after Jesus as well. As a matter of fact, we're told to expect them to continue to come. And many people will follow these fake messiahs, antichrists, they are called in the New Testament. They'll say, well, this person's finally going to lead us to the promised land. Um, we do it with, I may step on a little toe here, we do it with politics sometimes on occasion. We say, this is finally going to be the, the president we wanted. Well, I hope you're right. But I guarantee you, no president we vote for will ever lead us to heaven. We may get a more spiritual one. We may get one who acts more Christian. We may get one who is an evangelical like our vice president. But none of them will be the salvation of our souls or of our country. The only one that can save us is the door, the gate, Jesus Christ. See, Ezekiel spoke of these uh, false shepherds, uh, shepherds who only took care of themselves and not the flock. The priests that would get fat, get fat on, on the, the offerings of the people, but get no, give nothing back to them, would not lead them. They, they, they took from the people, but never gave. That was not Jesus. Throughout Old Testament, he, there, there are pseudo-prophets. Uh, I talked about one uh, Sunday night, who was actually a prophet of God. That's all we know about him, is that he was a prophet of God. But uh, along the way, he got sidetracked. So many of the what were considered prophets of the day, read back through First and Second, or particularly Second Kings, about all the prophets that, the, the prophets that, that uh, advised the king. The prophets that said exactly what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah had to go up against them. They said, oh no, Babylon, y'all don't listen to Jeremiah. Babylon's nothing. We're going to take care of that. Jeremiah saying, y'all, they're going to destroy us. So you might as well just get used to the idea. That wasn't a message they wanted to hear. We want to hear the fake prophet because he says nice things. We don't want a prophet like Nathan. 
who's going to confront David, tell him a story, and David says, oh, that's a horrible story. I'll kill the man who did that. Nathan says, oh, that was you, David. Nathan could have backed off. Nathan could have not told the story. There were too many who were willing to tell people what they wanted to hear. Jesus is saying, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of these zealots, one of these that's leading to a political charge against Rome or Greece 150 years before this or any other, uh, 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 any other country, any other uh, group that has come in and is depressing the people and, and, and taking over the people. I'm not worried about them. I'm not one of the Sadducees, he's saying. That, that marry their religion and their politics. Uh-oh. The Sadducees were fine with looking like the Jews, having uh, uh, an appearance of religion, as long as it got them what they wanted politically. Uh, better stop there. Um, far too often, that's what we want. And Jesus says, I'm not any of those. That's not me. These were all... Thieves and robbers. That's who came before me. Thieves and robbers. But the sheep, the people who knew better, the part of the flock, they did not listen to them. In context now, Jesus is specifically talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees who perverted godly leadership. They were knowledgeable of the law. They were knowledgeable, knowledgeable of the scriptures, but they perverted it for their own gain, for their own beliefs in what should be and what shouldn't be. And in particular, in this context, immediately prior to Jesus saying these things, they had turned away the man that Jesus had healed, kicked him out of the synagogue because he didn't believe the right things. Well, it's because he believed Jesus and not what they told him, what the Pharisees told him. Jesus says, I'm not like them. They were thieves and robbers. So what does Jesus provide? Well, how is he different from these who came before, these, these thieves and robbers that he is talking about here? Well, first of all, in verse, the first half of verse 9, Jesus provides salvation. Verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll, he will be saved. There's nobody else that can save you. There may be someone who can make you more comfortable. There may be someone who can provide a job for you. They may be, there may be someone who can do the things that you think need to be done in the government. There may be things that you think need to be done locally. There may be things that there may be people that can, can fix your home. There, there may be a number of things that you think, oh, they're good at this, but nobody can save you but Jesus. John rarely uses this word for salvation that he's using here. But he does it four times. Uh, he only does it actually five times in the whole book of John. But four times that he uses it, it defines the purpose of the coming of Jesus. Jesus came for salvation. Jesus did not come for your happiness. I won't say Jesus doesn't care if you're happy. But I will say Jesus cares more that you are holy than if you are happy. Jesus didn't come to make you rich. 
Jesus didn't come to liberate you from some sort of, of oppression, whether real or imagined. Jesus didn't come to do many of the things that we ascribe to Jesus' coming. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose. Jesus came to provide salvation. And as I said earlier, this heavenly gate was common imagery. So here he down, doubles down on it. He says, I'm the gate... I'm the door. Then he says again, I am the door who came to provide salvation. I am the entrance to heaven, he says, for my flock, for the sheep. This I am statement, if you haven't gotten it already, makes clear the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You want to have a good conversation about religion? Talk about God. But, but talk about a very nebulous, energy force, hard to pin down, kind of whatever you want it to be, God, and you'll have a great conversation. Because I can talk about God and talk about Yahweh of the Bible. Someone else can talk about God and talk about themselves, talk about an energy force, talk about a rock, talk about whatever they want to talk about, and we can have a conversation about God. You want to ruin that conversation? Bring up Jesus. Because Jesus does not allow for an energy force or self-worship or idol worship in the form of a stone or wood or something like that. Jesus only allows for himself to be worshipped and to be considered the source of salvation. The exclusivity of Christ is why Christianity is persecuted today. Y'all, we're not persecuted for our holiness. frankly, because sometimes the holiness of the church is incredibly difficult for people to find. But we are persecuted because we hold to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We tell people, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. We tell people, Islam cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. Muhammad can't save you. Buddha cannot save you. Hinduism, with their millions of gods, will not save you. Your own uh, gumption and, and, and self-work will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And that kind of frustrates people. Because we're telling them, one, that they're wrong, two, that we have something that they don't, and three, that they need the one thing that we have. And nobody likes to hear that, and I understand that. And sometimes it's just the way we present the message. Sometimes it's the message itself. But Jesus is making clear to his people, to the, to the flock, to the Pharisees to whom he is speaking here, that the Pharisees are not the gate, are not the door. Judaism is not the door. Religion of any kind is not the door. Your works are not the door. Jesus is the door. The second thing Jesus provides is in the second half of verse 9. Jesus provides protection. He says, I'm the door. Sheep hear my... Uh, Nope, wrong spot. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Second part, and will come in and go out and pasture. Interesting, the coming in and going out. That, that imagery to me, I want to go in and stay. I, I mean, that's, that's just kind of the way I think of salvation. 
Well, he's not talking about, and this is why I said a couple of weeks ago, that we can't take every metaphor in, in, in a parable, or not really a parable, but a metaphoric language here, and make a one-to-one correlation of, of everything. Because we would say, oh, we come into our salvation and we go out of our salvation. No, uh, he's mixed his metaphors here, and we've got to kind of keep up with where he's going. He's talking about our freedom, our ability to move freely and still be under his protection. This is Old Testament covenant language of blessings for obedience. That's the pasture. Go out to pasture. I mean, over and over in the Old Testament, Israel's final restoration is is seen as going to, to pasture. Deliverance from the persecuting nations is seen as pasture. Now, we've changed the metaphor, right? What happens when you go out to pasture? When you put somebody out to pasture, what have you done? They're old, they're tired, you're done with them. You put a horse out to pasture. Those are not any good anymore for what you need them, so you just let them go. Well, that's not the out to pasture we're talking about here. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about blessings. We are talking about here everything that we need in the pasture. Pasturing in these days, in the Old Testament days, was much more uh, needed, much more vital than we think of pasturing today, at least in that phrase of putting someone out to pasture. This is primarily, as I said, speaking of security in our salvation. Once we are a part of the flock, once we have come in by the door of Jesus, we are free to move in and out of the fold, in and out of the corral, the safety of the corral, the the protection of Jesus being the door that blocks anything from getting in. But we're also free to move when he leads us out, as every shepherd did, leads the flock out to pasture, still under his control, still under his protection, out in pasture, out in what we need, out in the blessings of life, Jesus is still there. He's still shepherding. He is still uh, protecting. This is a beautiful picture of our salvation being assured under the watchful eye of the shepherd. Once we come in through the door, I'm going to mix my scriptures, Nothing can snatch him, snatch us from his hand. We are his. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing will change that. We are protected no matter what we go through. You, you can listen to some preachers who will tell you that once you come to Jesus, you, you will have no problems. Raise your hand if you've ever seen evidence of that. Put your hands down if you raised them because you're wrong. Uh, if, 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 if Paul, if we think of the greatest Christian ever, we think of Paul, and look what he went through. He had his head cut off. Thank you, Jesus. No. Well, yes, because to be absent from the body, or to have your head removed from the body, is to be present with the Lord. So, yes, thank you, Jesus. But Paul never knew this prosperity gospel that said, I followed Jesus, now everything's perfect. Paul knew of the suffering of Jesus and counted it all joy to suffer as his Savior did. Jesus provides protection. Protection from the loss of our salvation. Protection from the snatching from God's hand. Protection from any opportunity to say, Jesus, you've left me. No, the shepherd will never leave us. Third thing Jesus provides is found in verse 10. 
Jesus provi provides profusion. Yeah, I struggle to come up with that word. It's, it's always great when you're a preacher and you get these you got three points, you know, and, and, and you've got the first two points, the words start with the same letter, and they almost kind of rhyme, and then you get to the third one, and you're like, I cannot think of anything that goes with those other two. Now, I'm going to look like a dope if I don't come up with one, because the first two match, and the third one, it doesn't, and, well, now you just know some of the process of, of, of going through getting a sermon ready during the week. Jesus provides profusion. We love this verse, right? This is one of our greatest, most favoritest verses. Because Jesus is going to give us everything. Hmm. It is a wonderful verse. For, uh, verse 10. The thief, a thief, he's already called, talked about thieves and robbers, which he is not. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Steal, kill, that word actually would be better translated slaughter. Steal, slaughter, and destroy. Interesting imagery for a shepherd. They rarely ate the sheep. They did. But, it, but a, 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 a dead sheep was pretty useless. They, they, they raised the sheep. They kept the sheep. The sheep were sources of, of wool, of uh, milk. You, you, a live sheep produced for you over and over and over. A dead sheep provided a few meals and you were done. They did eat them, but that wasn't the most important use for the sheep. What Jesus is saying here is that the thief is, is taking, not to use, not to, to benefit the shepherd, but to destroy, to, to get rid of it. The thief steals the sheep, kills it, and eats it. The thief, the spiritual thief, the, Satan, steals us, takes us, gets us away from the shepherd. Nothing takes us from the shepherd. Distracts us before we can become a part of the flock, before we go through the door. Gets us away from him, not so Satan can use us, but so Satan can destroy us. Satan doesn't want you because he finds you useful. Satan wants you because God loves you. And all he wants to do is hurt God. That's his sole purpose. The thief comes to get rid of. The thief comes to slaughter you. Comes to destroy you. Sin feels good, right? Sin destroys. Satan thinks, or Satan believes, or Satan tries to make you believe, this sin will make me happy. It doesn't. It just destroys you a little bit at a time. He, he disguises it. The, the father of lies lies about it and says to you, oh, this will be great. You'll love it. Oh, Jesus doesn't want you to do that because, well, he doesn't like you to have fun or whatever it is he wants you to, wants you to believe. His purpose is not to liberate you, but to destroy you. The thief only comes to get rid of it, to destroy you. That's the nature of false shepherds. Their evil is profuse. Jesus provides profusion, but the false shepherds are e equally profuse in their evil, in their desire to hurt. Jesus, in turn, provides profusely. This life is primarily eternal life. I have come that you might have life, eternal life, and have it abundantly. But it's not only that. I'm not going to stand up here and say, you don't get any 
temporal, uh, this side of heaven benefits from following Jesus? Because you absolutely do. I do believe that. I do believe God blesses. I do believe God provides. But what I won't tell you is that if God is not blessing or not providing what you think you need or what the culture tells you you should get, that somehow God is not happy with you or you're not following Jesus the right way or you don't have enough faith. I won't tell you that. What I will tell you is that God decides what blessings you need, what blessings you get. By his grace and mercy, he gives you what he believes you need and should get at this time, not by what you think you need or what you want. Your desires play very little into it unless you delight yourself in the Lord. Then he will give you the desires of your heart because then your desires will be his desires. He will bless you abundantly. Literally, that, that bl uh, abundant blessing means that which goes way beyond necessity. If we go back to the pasture imagery for just a second, we're talking about a very arid region a place where you ha might have to walk for miles and miles to get your flock from bad pasture to good pasture. And then once that, that's gone, you have to do it again. Jesus is saying, I provide more than is needed for the flock. You go to a pasture and you think, oh, it's about to run out. No, 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 because I have provided even more. What does that mean? In life, that means that when I am up against the most horrid, the most insurmountable difficulty I believe I can face, I can face it. I can do it. Now, th there's, there's much debate over uh, God will never get you, the, the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. That is both a true and a false statement. Because I will daily face things that I cannot handle on my own. But everything I face, I can handle because of my good shepherd who takes me out of the corral and puts me back into the corral. Who takes me to pasture and leads me back from pasture. I know that no matter what I go through, if I am following the voice of my shepherd, because this is based on me knowing his voice, hearing his call, following his leading, then I can know that no matter what I go through, I am protected. I am in his hand. If I die, I'm going to heaven. If I don't die, he's using me for something greater, far beyond what I can see. But everything I go through is a blessing, and nothing that I go through is beyond my ability to move through, provided I am moving through it with my shepherd. Jesus provides profusely. So, what does this passage tell us? First, we have to enter by the door. There is only one door by which we may enter. There's not another one. There is not many paths to heaven. There is one path to heaven. And that path only begins through the door of Jesus Christ. This passage tell us, tells us that we must follow the shepherd. We go in and out to pasture as we follow him. The sheep never left the corral without their shepherd. They followed the shepherd to pasture, and the shepherd led, led them back from pasturing. Third thing we see is we stay on his path. There is a way that the shepherd knows that is the best for us to follow. We follow him. We don't choose our own way. 
We don't think we've got it figured out. We do, but we're stupid. We think, oh, I've, I've got this. Thanks, God, for getting me this far. I'll take it from here. I'm an idiot. That I think because I've come this far with God, I can make it the rest of the way without him? No, we stay on his path. And in doing so, we experience his abundance now and forever. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is fleeting based on fleeting emotions. Joy is permanent based on our, uh, our membership in the flock and our relationship to the shepherd. Joy is always there regardless of the situation. Joy is not based on emotions. Joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is based on Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus is there through every circumstance and every emotion. So we can experience his abundance now, but more importantly, we experience his abundance forever. Jesus is the door. The door to heaven. The door to eternity. The door to salvation. We cannot, mind his uh, eyes have not seen and, and our minds have not thought of what heaven is going to be like. We get glimpses that, 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 that pale because God has to take what he has done and try to squeeze it down into uh, the, the, the smallest little uh, uh, microscopic words to, to get it into our puny brains. I mean, he's trying to get a watermelon through a drinking straw here to get us to understand what heaven is going to be like. So he has to condense this and say, okay, it's like this, it's like this, but it's so much better than any of that. That is life and life abundantly. So how do you have that? Well, we go back to the first point. We enter by the door. There's only one way for salvation. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have ruined our opportunity for heaven by our own actions. You can't blame Adam and Eve. Nope, it's your fault. They started it. You're finishing it. It's your fault because you are a sinner. And there's nothing you can do about that sin. No thief or robber can help you with that sin. No, 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 no Pharisee, no Judaism, no religion, no work can, can fix the sin problem that you have. You have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, Romans 6.23, is death. That's what you deserve. And as a matter of fact, that is what you will get. Everyone in here will die as a result of their sin. Every one of you. Me too. We die because of sin. The question is, will we experience only a physical death, or will we experience a physical and a spiritual death? Because 623 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the door, the gate. That is how we experience salvation. That is the only way to experience salvation. That gift fixes the sin problem. And God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, he sent his one and only son to die for us. 
He sent, it for ev- sent that son for everyone. The few who will follow, the many who will reject. Jesus died for each and every one while we were yet sinners. And it does not matter what your sin is. It does not matter what you feel trapped in today. It does not matter how vile you feel, and you probably are because we all are. Your, your level of sinfulness does not make you more vile than anyone else's supposed lower level of sinfulness. Notice that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of these sins is death, and the wages of these other sins is only kind of dying. No, the wages of sin, regardless of what you have done, is death. So there is nothing you have done that Jesus cannot save you from. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This morning, would you like to confess that? See, the belief, I can't prove that. That's something that goes on in you. The confession, we, we have a, a form of confession that, that, that we do. Sometimes folks come to the front and say, I want to follow Jesus, and, and we lead you in a, a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. Walking up doesn't save you. But I will say that if you claim to believe, but there has been no confession, verbal confession, life confession, as Baptists, obedient confession by being baptized, then I am going to ask you to examine what your belief is in. Have you truly believed if your life in no way shows or expresses that belief? So we we have those ways to do it, but y'all, it is really the faith in you that saves you. You're turning from sin, repenting, turning to Jesus and placing your faith in him. That's it. Thief on the cross never got baptized. Thief on the cross never lived a Christian life. The thief on the cross merely expressed faith, and Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. This morning, would you like to express your faith? I'll be down front. You can come forward and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you, talk to you about your decision. I'd love to be able to tell the church this morning, so-and-so has trusted Christ. Maybe you have other decisions this morning. Maybe you've trusted Christ, but you need to be baptized. Maybe you have trusted Christ, you've been baptized, but you're straying from the path that the shepherd is setting before you, and you want to come back to that. Maybe you want me to pray with you about that. Maybe you just want to come to the altar and pray. Whatever your decision is this morning, I pray that you would make it. And don't put it off. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you sent a shepherd that cares for us, that leads us, that is the door. God, we don't have to wonder if we found the right gate. We don't have to wonder if we found the right door. We know the door. Lord, may we respond to that door. This morning, if there's someone listening and they need to follow you in salvation, I pray that they would do that today. If there's someone listening and they need to repent, get back on the path, I pray that they would take this time to do it today. God, there may be other decisions here. I I pray that you would work on every heart. Lord, I pray that no, no one that has heard this message today leaves unchanged. 
leaves uh, the same way they came in. But God, because your word was opened, we know you spoke. And you spoke to change every heart that heard. And I pray every heart will be changed. God, move in this place in a mighty way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what decision do you need to make? You've heard God's word. It is your turn to respond. Every one of us needs to respond to what we've, we've heard today. Your response may be different from the person sitting beside you, but you still need to respond. So let's all stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God this morning.